Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for the reading of Your Word earlier. Thank You for the prayers already that focus our attention upon You and upon Your glory and the need for us to have to be worshipers who come to You in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray that You would help us even now as we open up Your Word, that we would be tender, soft and tender listeners to Your Word, that we would be people who are not only hearers of Your Word, but doers of Your Word who are not self-deceived. Father, our hearts are burdened this morning, and they have been burdened and heavy these past few days and really weeks. But especially lately as we think about um, people in Haiti and brethren in Haiti, we think about people in Afghanistan and those who have um, been um, catapulted out of that country under not very good terms and not very good treatment. And Father, we pray for those people that, Lord, they would find a gracious God in the midst of this, a gracious God that they can cry out to through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray for our brethren as well, the persecuted church all over the world, especially those in Afghanistan and who have exited Afghanistan. Think about those that I read of this week that were martyred for their faith. Lord, our hearts are heavy and burdened. Lord, we think about even the freedoms that we have in our own country right now, even though those things are being, uh, Lord, slowly but surely taken away. There is still so much freedom that we have here, even right now, to worship you in a sanctuary with air conditioning and to even be able to carry Bibles around with us or open up Bibles on our iPhones to the reading of your word and preaching of your word. Father, yet our hearts are so burdened also for our brethren who um, those things have, were taken away a long time ago or they never had them. And yet we know that you extend grace in every situation. And so we pray that you would comfort them, that you would encourage them. I think about our missionaries, local in this country, regional and all over the world. Our missionaries sent out from this church as an extension of this body to proclaim the gospel and to build relationships in various contexts and through various venues so that they might be able to see people come to know you. We pray for them, Lord. Encourage them. Comfort them, Lord. As they see the things that are going on in other countries are very close to them, I pray that you would give them courage, confidence, not in themselves, not in their circumstances, but in Christ. Lord, and help us, even as we continue to dwell in a country that is progressively more and more hostile against you, I pray that we would be people of courage, that we would be people who would not be, Lord, shying away from the proclamation of the gospel and living out the implications of the gospel in this country. You have called us to be salt and light, and you never promised that it would be without persecution or opposition. What did our Lord Jesus say? If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Father, help us to arm ourselves with that mentality, and more than anything else, that we would flesh out Lord, humble dependence upon you in prayer and the reading of your word and the means of grace that you've provided for us, including the ongoing stimulating of one another to love and good deeds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're back in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42 is our text for this morning. This is part two of a message that we started last week, if you remember, entitled Getting Gethsemane. Getting Gethsemane, and if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word in honor of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. This is God's Word. 
they came to a place called or named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass them by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, I was thinking this week how we have a tendency in life to draw parallels or to make comparisons in all kinds of, between all kinds of things. Um, it was interesting this week to interact with various people to see this. Um, I went, I think, three days ago to Pollo Loco to get some lunch, as we do as pastors. We sneak out to a place to get a quick lunch and all of that. So I got there, and I'm standing in this long line at Pollo Loco, and there were these two high schoolers from John Burroughs High School in front of me, and they were in this fun-loving but vehement debate about which place had the best chicken. <laughs> I know. We never did that when we were younger, right? You know. Which place had, has the best chicken? Is it Pollo Loco that they're about to partake of? Is it Popeye's or is it Chick-fil-A? And then it really got heated, still fun-loving, but heated as they're standing there in front of me. And I'm just listening to this whole thing thinking, oh, my goodness gracious. It got really heated when they started debating who had the best chicken sandwiches. Was it Popeye's or was it Chick-fil-A? And I just, at this point, I just couldn't contain myself. I had to go to bat for my Chick-fil-A, okay? So I just patted one of the guys on the shoulder and I go, hey, just for the record, it's Chick-fil-A, man. Everybody knows that. And they started busting up and laughing, so thankfully they weren't scared that I had done that. No, but these guys were drawing comparisons between food. You know, we do that with other particular, with other particular things. Um, this week, for instance, I also met somebody who, had just, who has just come in to get a, pick up a job here in California from another state. So they're moving from another state. And, and I asked them, said, so how are you doing here in California? And right away they began to make comparisons between this other state and California. You know, the weather and political climate and, and the job situation and, and the vibe that they get from people here in California as opposed to the state where they came from and all of that. You know, had a, we had a great time talking about how he compares where he came from to California. You know, we have a tendency to do this in life, don't we? To draw comparisons anywhere we can. To um, compare our experiences to someone else's experience. And even in the Christian life and in the church, we can do that at times. We can compare our, our past experiences and our trials and our tests. We might compare those and, and share them with one another for the purpose of bringing comfort to one another. And that certainly has its place. Life is all about sometimes just 
sharing and comparing experiences. But you know, when it comes to our passage, beloved, and specifically to Jesus' experience of suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane that we began to look at last week, there really is no exact comparison to anything that we would ever experience, but anything that compares to what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, when it comes to our experiences, nothing can ever come close to comparing to what Jesus went through for us. What Jesus went through in His suffering, culminating in His death on the cross for sinners. There is no comparison. Think about it. In Jesus' suffering and His death, the blameless one, Jesus, for the first time experienced guilt. But it was not guilt for His sin. It was guilt for our sin that was placed upon Him on the cross. The perfect one, Jesus for the first time, experienced imperfection. And it wasn't the imper- His own imperfection. It was the imperfection that came from our sins being reckoned to Him, to His account. The holy and pure one, for the first time, experienced impurity and unholiness as the stain of our sins were placed upon Him. And so you see, when you ponder that, due to who Jesus is, Nothing that we can ever go through in this life is comparable to what our Lord Jesus went through. Compares to His suffering culminating in His death. It was the great C.H. Spurgeon who said this, Jesus' sorrow was so great that it threatened to crush out His very life. It swept Him to the very limits of His endurance. Nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the the laments of the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. Gethsemane is unique. We do not go through our own Gethsemane. Jesus has done that for us. But we must learn to place our feet in the footsteps of faithfulness which he planted there if we are to be his disciples. So true. So true. Well, last week we began to contemplate all of this from the amazing scene of Gethsemane, didn't we? And we asked this question, what are we to get from this amazing account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? And we began to to answer that question by pondering four glorious portraits of Christ as we consider Gethsemane. And I told you that it's as if, as, as we contemplate the scene of Gethsemane, that we behold glory, the majesty of Jesus the glory of our Savior. We see and we savor our Lord, perhaps from a a new perspective, amidst His weakness here in the Garden of Gethsemane, that we would appreciate who He is and worship Him and adore Him for His faithfulness. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We want to continue looking at these four glorious portraits of Christ. Last Last week, if you remember, we considered first Christ's unique passion. Christ's unique passion. And by passion, we mean His, his suffering, culminating in his, in his death. And we were reminded that His suffering began here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not upon His arrest, as we often think about it. It began here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' suffering. It was the famous Scottish minister of the 19th century, Alexander White, who once said that when he got to heaven, one day when I, when I get to heaven, after seeing Jesus first, he said that the next 
person he wanted to see in heaven was an angel. But not just any angel of the myriads of angels in heaven. White wanted to see and talk to the angel of Luke chapter 22 and verse 43. The angel who it says in Luke twenty-two forty-three appeared to Jesus, strengthening him in the Garden of Gethsemane. White longed to speak to this angel who ministered to the eternal Son of God in His greatest moment of need, in His greatest moment of weakness from a human perspective. He wanted to, to, to interact with this angel. What would it have been like to minister to the eternal Son of God, the same one who you worship from all eternity from before the foundation of the world? So true. Just ponder that. Can you imagine It must have been quite the moment for all of the heavenly host of heaven to witness Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same Jesus that they had worshipped from all eternity. You know, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 tells us that all these things pertaining to our salvation are things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. Even angels are astounded by the love of God in Christ Jesus. So I concur with Mr. White that it would be awesome to speak to this angel. What was that moment like? Well, how extensive was Jesus' unique suffering? Luke twenty-two forty says that Jesus, being in agony, was praying very fervently. That is with such eagerness at that moment that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. You know, some have proposed... But we can confirm that it's quite possible that at that moment, Jesus suffered from a a rare condition called hematohydrosis. Hematohydrosis, which happens when a person is in such emotional distress, when they've been suffering from such intense pressure that one's capillaries dilate and burst. One medical doctor puts it like this. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict. Then as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands, and as the sweat glands are producing a lot of sweat, it pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Hematohydrosis. Now, we don't know for sure if that is what happened to Jesus, but it's quite possible that in his his humanity that that's exactly what he experienced. No matter what, one thing we can be for sure is this, that Jesus was under such unique suffering and pain, beloved, and trouble because he was anticipating God's abandonment of him at the cross. It was the experience of God-forsakenness. Remember later on, he will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father would abandon him. And this agony of Jesus comes because he knows that he's going to fully experience the outpouring of his father's just wrath for our sins. For our salvation. At this point, Jesus is experiencing this agony because of that God-forsakenness, anticipating that moment Most of us are familiar with the beautiful benediction of Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27, which goes something like this. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you. 
and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Maybe you've heard that beautiful benediction or maybe someone has uttered those words to you as somebody once did when I graduated from seminary and they came up to me and they uttered some of those beautiful words on that wonderful day. Just pronouncing a blessing upon me and future ministry and all of that. Well, Derek Thomas, a Scottish Scottish preacher and commenting on Gethsemane, observes that Jesus would, in essence, be facing the exact opposite of that benediction while at Calvary. At Calvary, the message to Jesus would have gone something like this. The Lord curse you. The Lord abandon you. The Lord cause His face to hide from you and be ungracious to you. The Lord lift up His anger against you and give you hell. This is the language of God-forsakenness, isn't it? For Christ, it was the exact opposite. Beloved, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, God has been gracious to us. He's given us unmerited kindness and favor because of Christ. But do you understand that Christ received the exact opposite at the cross? Why? Because of His sin? No, it was because of our sinfulness, our wickedness. He got the exact opposite. He experienced His Father's just wrath for our sins because Jesus was paying for our sins. Galatians 3.13 says Jesus became a, a curse for us. A curse for us. And all of this should evoke in us just appreciation and gratitude and adoration and worship to our King. Well, the second glorious portrait of Christ that we saw last week, in addition to this one, is Christ's humble dependence. We've seen Christ's unique passion. Note Christ's humble dependence. And just a few thoughts on this by way of review. We saw that prayer permeates this scene of Gethsemane, doesn't it? That in his greatest moment of need, Jesus is continually and fervently petitioning his Father. And none of this should surprise us, for Jesus lived this way, didn't he? We saw last week that there are constant references to Jesus' humble dependence shown, displayed, manifested in ongoing prayer at all times of the day, in the busy times of life. When ministry was booming, at least superficially speaking, from people who were following after Jesus, hundreds and thousands of people following after Christ. And what would Jesus do? He would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. At all times, Jesus was humbly dependent upon his Father. So much so that his disciples come to Jesus at one point and say, Lord, teach us to pray. That's what we, we've been watching your example. Teach us to, to pray. And he did. He taught them the pattern of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And beloved, as we ponder this portrait of, of Christ, of his humble dependence, we're reminded that we too, especially in our greatest moments of weakness, especially the last year and a half, 18 months and counting now, right? Because uh, I begin to say things like on the heels of COVID, seems like we're right smack in the middle of it again wherever you're at in terms of your opinions about this whole thing. We're right smack in the middle of this again. And in these moments of great weakness and and we're seeing so much conflict and hostility around us, how much more should we seek the face of God? How much more should we be humbly dependent upon our Heavenly Father? 
Listen to me. If Jesus, the eternal Son of God, lived in humble dependence upon His Father during His humanity, and He lived in the power of the Spirit, how much more us, who are broken and imperfect creatures, how much more should we be humbly dependent upon our Heavenly Father? In a very real way, I want to remind you that prayerlessness is our subtle declaration of independence from God. Prayerlessness is our subtle declaration of independence from God. When we don't pray, we are manifesting in practice great pride. Great pride. In what sense? In that we are showing our self-sufficiency. We are communicating even imperceptibly and in subtle ways, in ways that we would not articulate with our own mouths, but we're living this in our own actions, that we are adequate in ourselves. That we are actually enough. That we can do the Christian life, this Christian life on, on our own, and we don't need the Lord. And so as you ponder this portrait of Christ in Gethsemane, let me ask you, how is your prayer life currently? What is the litmus test of your dependence before the Lord? Are you, are, are you praying private times throughout the day? Do you have a, a, self, a, a sense of, self, uh, of, of God consciousness? Are you aware of the presence of your Heavenly Father throughout the day through His Word? And obviously because His Word tells us that He's always with us. And do you pray not only in times of crisis, in times of turmoil and trial and testing in your life, which we should absolutely, Jesus being case in point, we should do it at those times. We should come to the Lord during those times. But do you pray just to commune with your Heavenly Father? Just to be with Him? Just to abide in Christ? Christ's unique passion, His humble dependence. Today we want to look at the third glorious portrait of Christ in Gethsemane. It's this. Ready? Christ's Selfless care. Christ's selfless care. One of the things I've been astounded by from the life of our Lord throughout this gospel and just looking at all of the gospels is how much Jesus selflessly cares for other people. We've seen him care for people, for instance, in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, by casting out demon after demon from people, rescuing them from great spiritual oppression. We've seen people, Jesus care for people by healing the sick, even paralytics and, and lepers who rejected Jesus and were social outcasts, or who, who were rejected by others and were social outcasts. Even though others turned their, uh, people turned their back on these people who were ill and sick, What did Jesus do? He always had a caring hand, didn't he? He reached out to people who were rejected. He once healed a poor little lady with a hemorrhage, giving her newfound hope. He raised the little daughter of a synagogue official named Jairus from the dead. Jesus cared for people by displaying amazing compassion, even feeding thousands and thousands of people who were coming to him. 15,000. 25,000, including women and children. Most of those people, by the way, were not coming after Jesus, pursuing Jesus, because they actually believed in Him. They wanted His gifts, but they didn't love the giver. What did Jesus do? He still loved them. He still cared for them. He displayed genuine compassion and love for them. Jesus cared for people. Jesus cared even for His enemies. Even ministering to those who, who who hated Him. 
by speaking the truth in love to them, as in the case of the religious leaders. He was a lover of his enemies even. Listen, if selfless care is to be a characteristic of we who are Christians, then Jesus is the ultimate example, beloved, that we must emulate of selfless care. What makes Jesus so glorious and precious in addition to that is this, is that it's one thing to be mindful of others when things are well in your life, when things are calm, when things are are comparatively uneventful. It's easy to care for people during those times, isn't it? It comes easier for us. We have more time. We're less fixated upon our own problems and worries. But it's quite another thing to care for people, to care for others, when you're in the middle of your own difficulties and you're in the middle of your own troubles, when you are in the pit of despair yourself. And yet, I want you to see that this is what Jesus did precisely. He cared for people. Here he is in the garden, in and out of multiple prayer sessions, appealing to his disciples in their own battle against their own flesh, as we're going to see, battling and wrestling with himself as the Lord Jesus. And even in the midst of that, he has not forgotten about his loved one, his his disciples. Look at verse 34. He says to Peter, James, and John, he had left the others some distance away. Had brought Peter, James, and John to himself, and he says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. You know, some people have concluded that Jesus brings these three along because he because he's lonely, or perhaps because he, he needs them to be to be his eyes for, for protection, to be on the lookout for his betrayer so that they can let him know when the, the, the enemies arrive to arrest him. But there's more here. I think there's more here. He goes away for his first prayer session. And then notice he returns a second time in verse 37. It says that he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? I mean, Jesus has a point, doesn't he? Here's the guy who who had sworn loyalty and allegiance to Jesus multiple times that night, just a few hours before, but he couldn't even stay awake for one hour. For the Lord. But why do you think that Jesus is repeatedly cautioning his disciples to be alert, to be watchful, to be vigilant? Is he just being hard on them? Is he just sort of a slave driver? Is Jesus being insensitive to the fact that they're that they're tired? I mean, after all, these poor disciples had just had a great big meal. Their tummies are full. You and I know how we get right after a big meal, right? We get tired. We want to rest. On top of that, it's been an, an emotion-packed night. I mean, is Jesus just being unreasonable here? Is he being insensitive to his disciples? Of course not. Jesus says to him in verse 38, notice, Keep watching and praying. And here's the reason why. That you may not come into what, beloved? Temptation. Temptation here is the the inward solicitation to evil. That you may not be solicited to do evil. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Jesus understands the moment. He knows about human weakness. He knows about human susceptibility. 
to sin. He knows about human sinfulness. That's why he's come to solve that problem in the life of those who are his own. He knows in the light of that, that if they're not vigilant, if they're not humbly dependent upon God, they will fall. He's the ultimate shepherd. And more than anyone else, Jesus understands, brothers and sisters, that life is about spiritual warfare. That it's spiritual war here in this world. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Some of us forget that. We live so naive. We drink the Kool-Aid. Any package that is handed to us, oh, wow, what a beautiful package of ideas there. New progressive ideas. No. Recognize that, it's, that the, the spiritual battle that we face is fought on the ground level of ideas that are destructive fortresses raised up against the knowledge of Christ. It's spiritual warfare that we face. Jesus understood that even in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he lived with that sense of awareness. And so based on that, he says with great urgency, notice in verse 38, keep watching. And then implied, keep praying. Here's the principle. The reality of spiritual attacks necessitates maximum vigilance and proactive watchfulness expressed in prayer. And humble dependence upon the Lord. Jesus is being a great shepherd here. He's being a a vigilant spiritual shepherd. A protective shepherd. He knows what he's about to do, what's about to happen to him. But he's mindful in the midst of that, that he's also training and preparing his disciples. So he's mindful of their impending danger in the light of what's about to happen to Jesus. They will strike the shepherd. And what's going to happen to the sheep? They will flee. Jesus knows that. He wants them to be prepared and vigilant. Look at verse 39. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. What words? Those of verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. As we said last week, that's not Jesus Jesus displaying sinfulness there. That's Jesus showing his humanity, his true humanity in the midst of that prayer. But notice that Jesus goes away and prays once more. But yet again, in the midst of his own troubles, he comes to them a a third time. Look at verse 40. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer Jesus. Once again, he probably exhorted them to be vigilant, to be alert in prayer, to be to be watchful. But in their physical weakness, they were losing sight of this moment, weren't they? He goes away for a third prayer session. Notice this. And then returns again in verse 41. And he came the the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Once again, Jesus is not being overbearing here. Jesus is being a, a protective, loving, caring shepherd. He's calling and cautioning them to spiritual alertness because the degree of opposition that they are about to experience is humanly impossible to bear up under unless they are humbly dependent upon the Father, right? Behold, the tender, selfless compassion and care of Christ, even in the midst of his own weakness. And susceptibilities. I find it astounding that he's mindful of them. 
even though he himself is under distress and suffering from excruciating agony here. It's amazing. You know, the Bible tells us that God cares for us this way, that he watches over us. Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Isn't this our experience with Christ, beloved? That he always watches over us in our greatest moments of weakness. That we most vividly experience God's continual watchful care in the midst of our struggle with sin, in the midst of our tests and our trials. We're reminded here that like his disciples, Jesus is mindful of us in our greatest, deepest moments of darkness. Especially those that come with trials and testings like the ones we've experienced the last 18 months and counting, right? Now, coupled with this, did you notice that, that Jesus also expects that his disciples not be passive in this, that they, are not be, they be not be slumbering in the midst of impending spiritual danger? Did you notice the exhortations in verse 38? Keep watching and implied keep praying. There's urgency in those exhortations. That's a present tense imperative there. Those are commands to be continually, habitually practiced by his disciples in the midst of the spiritual attacks that they will be encountering. Yes, it's true that Jesus watches over them and watches over us, but it's also true that his disciples and we, who are believers, who are followers of Jesus, need to take a proactive approach to being spiritually alert in the Christian life. And so here's the human responsibility side of spiritual warfare. As Christians, we've been handed every spiritual resource in the heavenly places in Christ. Everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have been given every spiritual weapon, according to Ephesians chapter 6. Every spiritual weapon from God is at our disposal as believers. But we must employ these weapons. You need to plug in as a believer to the, to the energy source that is already there. You need to give maximum effort to stand firm. According to Ephesians 6, we are to put on the full armor of God. Why? That we might be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. James chapter 4, verse 7 says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's an exhortation to Christians who have the Spirit of God living within them. Why would we be instructed to resist the devil and he will flee from you? Precisely because it's possible for you as a grace-filled, spirit-empowered believer to resist Satan, right? Satan can never indwell believers as the Spirit of God has indwelt Christians. But certainly we are attacked daily by spiritual forces, aren't we? Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 also speaks of prayer in the midst of this spiritual warfare. Devote yourselves to prayer. Boy, that's not often a part of our spiritual armor. We don't often think about that part of our spiritual armor, do we? Prayer. But he says, devote yourselves to, to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And then Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We are to be always in a state of prayer, doing so according to the will of God, never giving up and petitioning for all saints within and without. Ephesians 6, 18 and following. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, you know this verse. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus will sustain us. Jesus will selflessly continue to care for us as our great chief shepherd. Jesus will continue to empower us, but he wants us to employ the spiritual resources that God has provided for us in spiritual warfare. It's not, the Christian life is not let go and let God. It's not. It's not, I'm going to put this baby on neutral. I'm already saved from my sins. I've been rescued from the, power, from the penalty of my sin. Now I can just put this baby on neutral and God takes over. Yes, God sustains us. Yes, God God empowers us. Yes, there's no way that we can obey any commands apart from the help of God. But God says, you're responsible for giving maximum effort in the power of my spirit and by the guidance of my holy word to your pursuit of being like Jesus. It's not let go and let God. And it's part of what we see here even in the garden. Jesus is exhorting and instructing his disciples I am, I am watching over you. I am caring for you. But you need to be watchful. You need to be vigilant. You need to be prayerful people who are humbly dependent. Listen to our brother J.C. Ryle. Let us note in these verses how much weakness may be found even in the best Christians. They slept when they ought to have kept watch and prayed. Though invited by our Lord to watch with him, they slept Though warned a short time before that danger was at hand and their faith likely to fail, they slept. Though fresh from the Lord's table with all its touching solemnities, they slept. Never was there a more striking proof that the best of people are only human and that so long as saints are in the body, they are subject to weakness. But these things are written for our learning as well. Let us take care that they are not written in vain. Let us always be on guard against the slothful, indolent, lazy spirit in religion, which is natural to us all, and especially in the matter of our private prayers. Whenever we feel this spirit of laziness creeping over us, let us remember Peter, James, and John in the garden, and let us be watchful and take care of our own souls. What a reminder. What a reminder that living by grace, beloved, does not mean living the Christian life on cruise control. If we are to stand firm in the Christian life, we must employ God's spiritual resources, the spiritual warfare that God has given us already. We must employ His his means of grace if we are to stand in the Christian life. We've seen Christ's unique passion, His humble dependence, His selfless care. Lastly, Notice Christ's relentless resolve. His relentless resolve. This is the fourth glorious portrait of our Lord in Gethsemane. What we see throughout this passage is Jesus genuinely wrestling, and that ultimately, as we said last week, points to his his real humanity. But he's not in agony here because of the physical pain that he's going to undergo. He's not experiencing this kind of agony because of of the shame that he would experience, because of people's abandonment of him, even his own disciples. His agony is a spiritual agony, isn't it? He's facing the reality of being the sin-bearer of the world. He's facing the, the reality of the subsequent abandonment 
That when the sins of the world are placed upon him, his father will abandon him in that moment because of our sins. But even through all of this, though he's truly walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you know what happens? He comes out on the other side resolved and determined to die for sins, right? And you see it even in his prayers that he's committed to his father's will. Look at verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. What is that cup there? That's the cup of his suffering and his death. If you remember back in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said to his disciples, you do not know what you are asking. A couple of them were, were asking for the places of prominence in the future kingdom. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup? that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. He's speaking figuratively there in Mark 8, 38. He's speaking about the cup of his suffering culminating in his death for sins. In fact, earlier in the upper room that night, we saw how the the cup symbolized Jesus' blood, his atoning death on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 36 is he's pleading with God And yet ultimately he says, yet not I will, but what you will to his father. He was submitted to do what his father has sent him to do from eternity past. Jesus understood what his mission was. By the way, as a side note on prayer, Jesus praying this way is instructive for us, isn't it? It reminds us that it's not necessarily wrong to ask God for something that he may not intend to do for you. In so long as we're prepared to submit our wills to his revealed will for us, right? We can ask, but the answer will not always be yes. Many times the answer is no. Oftentimes the answer is wait. And then later on in that waiting, it's no. And so we can pray and ask like Jesus did, but he ultimately submitted himself to his father's will. This is after three separate prayer sessions where Jesus is pleading with God, remove this cup from me. Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. I love that. The son of man was absolutely committed to his father's glory and to loving us by going to the cross. It's after all of this praying that Jesus comes out on the other side of this greatest hour of testing. And it says, or he says to his disciples, if you notice in the middle of verse 41, it is enough. It is enough. Only Mark records those words. Very simply, the message is, you're done sleeping. The hour, verse 41, has come. What hour is that? The hour he's been talking about throughout the whole gospel of Mark and throughout the gospels. The hour of his suffering. The hour of his death. The hour of the cross. The hour that Mark has been rushing us toward. He's been pushing us and moving the narrative quickly to the cross. Jesus says, the hour has come. Verse 41, Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. There's a sense of urgency in Jesus' words. There's a tone of authority in Jesus' words. But I want you to notice that more than anything else, there's an attitude after all of this human struggle, short of sin for Jesus, there's this attitude of determination and of resolve. 
As horrifying and terrifying as this test has been for Jesus in the garden, Jesus is ready for what is to come. He is resolved, fixed on his mission to die for sins on the cross. He's determined to do what Mark 10.45 says he came to do. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It says in Luke 9.51 that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. That is, he had set his face toward Jerusalem. To do what in Jerusalem? To die. To die. And I want to remind us that that was never reluctant. Jesus was never digging in his heels as he went to the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and ready for this, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. It's amazing, isn't it? In the midst of all of this struggle that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus went to the cross fixed on the joy of the future. What joy was that? Pleasing his Father, vindicating his Father's glory, his justice, and knowing that it was through that sacrifice, by faith, that we would be saved from our sins. That brought joy to Christ. That's why he went to the cross who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Glory to God for that, that we have great hope because of this. It should encourage us that as we contemplate Gethsemane, we see Jesus' determination to fulfill his Father's will and love sinners. As 1 John 4.14 says, The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I remember learning that verse first and foremost, you know where? In Awana. I love that. It was one of the first verses my kids memorized in Sunday school. I remember, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That was His mission. Nothing would deter or detract Jesus from glorifying His Father and fulfilling His Father's will to suffer and die for sin. Wow. Now listen, as we contemplate Gethsemane, we should also be reminded not only of the love of God in Christ Jesus, but also the seriousness of our sin and what it took to procure our salvation jesus's agony was due to the fact that he would be our sin bearer and as such he would absorb the wrath of god on our behalf that's how serious sin is that god the father gave his only begotten son for our sins that's how serious sin is god sent his only begotten son to pay for sins on the cross Sinclair Ferguson comments, Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life he really feared. Not the cruel death which would end his life, for he knew he would rise again, but the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God forsaken. He felt he could not live. Indeed, that life was not worth living without the consciousness of his father's love for him. That's sobering, isn't it? That's sobering. It should cause us, especially as Christians, to remember the high cost of God procuring our salvation so that we don't take our sin lightly in the Christian life. Listen, God has rescued you in Christ Jesus if you've trusted in Christ from the penalty of your sin, but also He has has removed sin's grip and power over your life. If you are living in sin, it's because you're choosing to live in sin. 
You have the power now by the Spirit of God and by God's Word and grace to overcome your sin. As we contemplate Gethsemane, we're reminded also of the identification of our Savior with us. That He can identify with our human weakness. I love this. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser here. The perfect God-man experienced the greatest possible agony than anything that we may experience that is lesser, he fully understands, doesn't he? Ferguson comments, the fact that Jesus entered this darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane and experienced such grief is the source of all of our comfort as Christians. It assures us that he understands our darkest hours. But more, it means that he has drawn the sting from our dark, darkest hour. For he has entered our God-forsaken condition so that we might share his God-accepted relationship to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? Through Christ, we are now accepted in Christ Jesus, no longer estranged from God, no longer enemies of God, but children of God through Jesus Christ because Jesus went to Gethsemane, because Jesus went through ridicule, because Jesus was beaten for our sins, because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, because Jesus rose from the dead. We now identify by faith in Jesus and He with us so that, beloved, there is nothing that we can go through that will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an Amen. That's something to rejoice about. Listen, Jesus identifies with our human condition and weakness. If you find yourself currently in a dark valley right now, I want to remind you, beloved, your Savior understands. There was no valley that was darker or pit of despair deeper than the one that Jesus experienced, and yet He conquered it all. All of it. So have you struggled with loneliness during this time? Isolation? Christ understands. Christ understands. By the way, isolation, not because you've chosen that, but just in the midst of all the tests and the trials that we've seen in the last 18 months and counting, have you struggled with fear or anxiety about the future? Christ understands. Have you struggled with paralyzing emotions or, or a sense of despair about an array of issues, not wanting to continue anymore? Christ understands. Have you struggled with debilitating sadness, discouragement, being disheartened, even depression where you're just down and out? You don't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus understands, brother and sister. Jesus understands. Are you here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior? And you're thinking to yourself, there's no possible way that, that Jesus understands just how much I've sinned against Him. Yes, He does. And He's willing to forgive you if you would turn from your sins and trust in Him. He understands. He came to save sinners, among whom we are chief sinners of all, right? Christ is the ultimate victor and champion of our, of our faith. And hear me, as believers, we, we don't want to follow someone who consistently loses the same battles that we face, right? All of us fall short to one extent or another. But how comforting it is that we have a chief shepherd who we follow, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's the blameless one. We can put our confidence in the faithful one. And hear me, you ought not to even put your confidence in your own faithfulness. We are called to be faithful in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God. But we should not put our confidence in our own faithfulness. We walk in fidelity to Christ and we put our confidence in the faithful one, right? 
who never fails. Jesus, the Son of God. How glorious of a picture we get then from the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ's unique passion, His humble dependence, His selfless care, His relentless resolve to go to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, beloved, more than anything else, we see the glory and the majesty of Jesus, that our faith would be strengthened, that our love would be deepened for our Savior. Amen? Well, I, want you, I just want to invite you to close your eyes for a couple of minutes, okay? Close your eyes there where you are. And I want you to just ponder two passages with me that I'm going to read about our Savior and the implications of following this Savior. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Ponder these words. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since Jesus Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, listen to this, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, namely us. And then Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father God, our hearts echo those sentiments from Your Word. Lord, we want to be people who fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, there is nothing. Life is meaningless. It is worthless apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's what your word says. We want to be people who live that, who flesh that out personally as families and collectively as a local body of believers. Oh, Father, give us that kind of heart. Elevate, raise up, heighten our view of Christ. Not only the Christ who was humiliated or subjected himself to humiliation on earth, but the ascended, risen, exalted Christ who is returning one day to judge the living and the dead. Oh Lord, we need our faith strengthened. We need our love deepened so that we would live out the implications of who Christ is and what he's done in our life so that we would be on mission all the more sharing about this Christ. Father, thank you for the lessons from Gethsemane. Thank you for the beautiful portrait of Jesus. May, Lord, we respond to these wonderful passages here, even in Mark and in Gethsemane, with a greater sense of adoration and praise and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.